Chapter 11 Another Boy's Mother Arthur's mother was English. Her name was Mrs. Milligan. She was a widow, and Arthur was her only son. At least it was supposed that he was her only son living, for she had lost an elder child under mysterious circumstances. When the child was six months old, it had been kidnapped, and they had never been able to find any trace of him. It is true that at the time he was taken, Mrs. Milligan had not been able to make the necessary searches. Her husband was dying, and she herself was dangerously ill and knew nothing of what was going on around her. When she regained consciousness, her husband was dead and her baby had disappeared. Her brother-in-law, Mr. James Milligan, had searched everywhere for the child. There being no heir, he expected to inherit his brother's property. Yet, after all, Mr. James Milligan inherited nothing from his brother. For seven months after the death of her husband, Mrs. Milligan's second son, Arthur, was born. But the doctor said that this frail, delicate child could not live. He might die at any moment. In the event of his death, Mr. James Milligan would succeed to the fortune. He waited and hoped, but the doctor's predictions were not fulfilled. Arthur lived. It was his mother's care that saved him. When he had to be strapped to a board, she could not bear the thought of her son being closed up in a house. So she had a beautiful barge built for him and was now traveling through France on the various canals. Naturally, it was not the first day that I learned all this about the English lady and her son. I learned these details little by little while I was with her. I was given a tiny cabin on the boat. What a wonderful little room it appeared to me. Everything was spotless. The only article of furniture that the cabin contained was a cabinet. But what a cabinet! Bed, mattress, pillows and covers combined. And attached to the bed were drawers containing brushes, combs, and so on. There was no table or chairs, at least not in their usual shape. But against the wall was a plank, which when pulled down was found to be a little square table and chair. How pleased I was to get into that little bed. It was the first time in my life that I had felt soft sheets, against my face. Mother Barbrands were very hard and they used to rub my cheeks and Vitalis and I had more often slept without sheets and those at the cheap lodging houses at which we stayed were just as rough as Mother Barbrands. I woke early for I wanted to know how my animals had passed the night. 
I found them all at the place where I had installed them the night before, and sleeping as though the beautiful barge had been their home for several months. The dogs jumped up as I approached, but pretty hard, although he had one eye half open, did not move. Instead, he commenced to snore like a trombone. I guessed at once what was the matter. Pretty Heart was very sensitive. He got angry very quickly and sulked for a long time. In the present circumstances, he was annoyed because I had not taken him into my cabin, and he showed his displeasure by pretending to be asleep. I could not explain to him why I had been forced to leave him on deck, and as I felt that I had, at least in appearances, done him an injury, I took him in my arms and cuddled him to show him that I was sorry. At first he continued to sulk, but soon, with his changeable temper, he thought of something else, and by his signs made me understand that if I would take him for a walk on land, he would perhaps forgive me. The man who was cleaning the deck was willing to throw the plank across for us, and I went off into the fields with my troop. The time passed playing with the dogs and chasing pretty hard. When we returned, the horses were harnessed and the barge ready to start. As soon as we were all on the boat, the horses began to trot along the towing path. We glided over the water without feeling a movement, and the only sound to be heard was the song of the birds, the swish of the water against the boat, and the tinkle of bells around the horses' necks. Here and there the water seemed quite black, as though it was of great depth. In other parts it was as clear as crystal, and we could see the tiny pebbles and velvety grass below. I was gazing down into the water when I heard someone call my name. It was Arthur. He was being carried out on his board. Did you sleep well, he asked, better than in the field. I told him that I had, after I had politely spoken to Mrs. Milligan. And the dogs, asked Arthur. I called to them. They came running up with pretty heart, the latter making grimaces as he usually did when he thought that we were going to give a performance. Mrs. Milligan had placed her son in the shade and had taken a seat beside him. Now, she said to me, you must take the dogs and the monkey away. We are going to work. I went with the animals to the front of the boat. What work could that poor little boy do? I looked round and saw that his mother was making him repeat a lesson from a book she held in her hand. He seemed to be having great difficulty in mastering it, but his mother was very patient. No, she said at last, Arthur, you don't know it at all. I can't, Mama, I just can't, he said plaintively. I'm sick. Your head is not sick. I can't allow you to grow up in utter ignorance because you're an invalid, Arthur. That seemed very severe to me, 
yet she spoke in a sweet, kind way. Why do you make me so unhappy? You know how I feel when you won't learn. I cannot, Mama, I cannot. And he began to cry. But Mrs. Milligan did not let herself be won over by his tears, although she appeared touched and even more unhappy. I would have liked to have let you play this morning with Remy and the dogs, she said, but you cannot play until you know your lessons perfectly. With that she gave the book to Arthur and walked away, leaving him alone. From where I stood I could hear him crying. How could his mother, who appeared to love him so much, be so severe with the poor little fellow? A moment later she returned. Shall we try again? she asked gently. She sat down beside him, and taking the book, she began to read the fable called The Wolf and the Sheep. She read it through three times, then gave the book back to Arthur and told him to learn it alone. She went inside the boat. I could see Arthur's lips moving. He certainly was trying very hard. But soon he took his eyes off the book. His lips stopped moving. His look wandered everywhere, but not back to his book. Suddenly he caught my eye. I made a sign to him to go on with his lesson. He smiled as though to thank me for reminding him and again fixed his eyes on his book. But as before, he could not concentrate his thoughts. His eyes began to rove from first one side of the canal to the other. Just then a bird flew over the boat swiftly as an arrow. Arthur raised his head to follow its flight. When it had passed, he looked at me. I can't learn this, he said, and yet I want to. I went over to him. It is not very difficult, I said. Yes, it is. It's awfully difficult. It seems to me quite easy. I was listening while your mother read it, and I almost learned it myself. He smiled as though he did not believe it. Do you want me to say it to you? You can't. Shall I try? You take the book. He took up the book again, and I began to recite the verse. I had it almost perfect. What? You know it? Not quite, but next time I could say it without a mistake, I believe. How did you learn it? I listened while your mother read it but I listened attentively, without looking about to see what was going on round about me. He reddened and turned away his eyes. I will try like you, he said, but tell me, what did you do to remember the words? I did not quite know how to explain, but I tried my best. What is the fable about, I said, sheep. Well, first of all, I thought of sheep. The sheep were in the field. I could see them lying down and sleeping in the field. 
picturing them so I did not forget. Yes, yes, he said. I can see them, black and white ones, in a green field. What looks after the sheep, usually? Dogs. And? A shepherd. If they thought the sheep were quite safe, what did they do? The dog slept while the shepherd played his flute in the distance with the other shepherd. Little by little, Arthur had the entire fable pictured in his mind's eye. I explained every detail as well as I was able. When he was thoroughly interested, we went over the lines together, and at the end of half an hour he had mastered it. Oh, how pleased Mama will be, he cried. When his mother came out, she seemed displeased that we were together. She thought that we had been playing. But Arthur didn't give her time to say a word. I know it, he cried. Remy has taught it to me. Mrs. Milligan looked at me in surprise. But before she could say a word, Arthur had commenced to recite the fable. I looked at Mrs. Milligan. Her beautiful face broke into a smile. Then I thought I saw tears in her eyes, but she bent her head quickly over her son and put her arms about him. I was not sure if she was crying. The words mean nothing, said Arthur. They're stupid, but the things that one sees. Remy made me see the shepherd with his flute and the fields and the dogs and the sheep, then the wolves. And I could even hear the music that the shepherd was playing. Shall I sing the song to you, Mama? And he sang a little sad song in English. This time Mrs. Milligan did really cry, for when she got up from her seat, I saw that Arthur's cheeks were wet with her tears. Then she came to me, and taking my hand in hers, pressed it gently. You are a good boy, she said. The evening before, I had been a little tramp, who had come on the barge with his animals to amuse a sick child. But this lesson drew me apart from the dogs and the monkey. I was from now on a companion, almost a friend to the sick boy. From that day there was a change in Mrs. Milligan's manner towards me, and between Arthur and myself there grew a strong friendship. I never once felt the difference in our positions. This may have been due to Mrs. Milligan's kindness, for she often spoke to me as though I were her child. When the country was interesting, we would go very slowly. But if the landscape was dreary, the horses would trot quickly along the towing path. When the sun went down, the barge stopped. When the sun rose, the barge started on again. If the evenings were damp, we went into the little cabin and sat round a bright fire so that the sick boy should not feel chilly. And Mrs. Milligan would read to us and show us pictures and tell us beautiful stories. 
Then, when the evenings were beautiful, I did my part. I would take my harp, and when the boat had stopped, I would get off and go at a short distance and sit behind a tree. Then, hidden by the branches, I played and sang my best. On calm nights, Arthur liked to hear the music without being able to see who played. And when I played his favorite airs, he would call out, Encore! And I would play the piece over again. That was a beautiful life for the country boy, who had sat by Martha Barbarin's fireside, and who had tramped the high roads with Signor Vitalis. What a difference between the dish of boiled potatoes that my poor foster mother had given me and the delicious tarts, jellies, and creams that Mrs. Milligan's cook made. What a contrast between the long tramps in the mud, the pouring rain, the scorching sun, trudging behind Vitalis, and this ride on the beautiful barge. The pastry was delicious, and yes, it was fine, oh, so fine, not to be hungry, no tired, no too hot, no too cold. But in justice to myself, I must say that it was the kindness and the love of this lady and this little boy that I felt the most. Twice I had been torn from those I loved. First from dear mother Barbaran, and then from Vitalis. I was left with only the dogs and the monkey, hungry and footsore, and then a beautiful lady, with a child of about my own age, had taken me in and treated me as though I were a brother. Then, as I looked at Arthur, strapped to his bench, pale and drawn, I envied him. I, so full of health and strength, envied the little sick boy. It was not the luxuries that surrounded him that I envied not the boat. It was his mother. Oh, how I wanted a mother of my own. She kissed him, and he was able to put his arms around her whenever he wished. This lady, whose hand I scarcely dared touch when she held it out to me. And I thought sadly that I should never have a mother who would kiss me and whom I could kiss. Perhaps one day I should see Mother Barbaran again, and that would make me very happy. But I could not call her mother now, for she was not my mother. I was alone. I should always be alone. Nobody's boy. I was old enough to know that one should not expect to have too much from this world. And I thought that, as I had no family, no father or mother, I should be thankful that I had friends. And I was happy, so happy on that barge. But alas, it was not to last long. The day was drawing near for me to take up my old life again. Chapter 12 a foundling. It was all to end, 
this beautiful trip that I had made on the birch. No nice bed, no nice pastry, no evenings listening to Mrs. Milligan. Ah, oh, no Mrs. Milligan or Arthur. One day I decided to ask Mrs. Milligan how long it would take me to get back to Toulouse. I wanted to be waiting at the prison door when my master came out. When Arthur heard me speak of going back, he began to cry. I don't want him to go. I don't want Remy to go, he sobbed. I told him that I belonged to Vitalis and that he had paid a sum of money for me and that I must return to him the moment he wanted me. I had spoken of my foster parents, but had never said that they were not really my father and mother. I felt ashamed to admit that I was a foundling, a child picked up in the streets. I knew how the children from the foundling's hospital had been scorned. It seemed to me that it was the most abject thing in the world to be a foundling. I did not want Mrs. Milligan and Arthur to know. Would they not have turned from me in disdain? Mama, we must keep Remy, continued Arthur. I should be very pleased to keep Remy with us, replied Mrs. Milligan. We are so fond of him. But there are two things. First, Remy would have to want to stay. Oh, he does, he does, cried Arthur. Don't you, Remy? You don't want to go back to Toulouse. The second is, continued Mrs. Milligan, will his master give him up? Remy comes first, he comes first, Arthur insisted. Vitalis had been a good master, and I was very grateful for all he had taught me. But there was no comparison between my life with him and that which I should have with Arthur. And at the same time, there was also no comparison between the respect I had for Vitalis and the affection which I felt for Mrs. Milligan and her invalid boy. I felt that it was wrong for me to prefer these strangers to my master, but it was so. I loved Mrs. Milligan and Arthur. If Remy stays with us, it will not be all pleasure, went on Mrs. Milligan. He would have to do lessons the same as you. He would have to study a great deal. It would not be for the free life that he would have in going tramping along the roads. Ah, you know what I would like, I began. There, there, you see, Mama, interrupted Arthur. All that we have to do now, continued Mrs. Milligan, is to get his master's consent. I will write and ask him if he will come here, for we cannot return to Toulouse. I will send him the fare and explain to him the reason why we cannot take the train. I'll invite him here, and I do hope he will accept. If he agrees to my proposition, added Mrs. Milligan, 
I will then make arrangements with your parents, Remy, for of course they must be consulted. Consult my parents? They will tell her what I have been trying to keep secret, that I am a foundling. Then neither Arthur nor Mrs. Milligan would want me. A boy who did not know his own father or mother had been a companion to Arthur. I stared at Mrs. Milligan in a fright. I did not know what to say. She looked at me in surprise. I did not dare reply to her question when she asked me what was the matter. Probably thinking that I was upset at the thought of my master coming, she did not insist. Arthur looked at me curiously all the evening. I was glad when bedtime came and I could close myself in my cabin. That was my first bed night on board the Swan. What could I do? What could I say? Perhaps Vitalis would not give me up. Then they would never know the truth. My shame and fear of them finding out the truth was so great that I began to hope that Vitalis would insist upon me staying with him. Three days later, Mrs. Milligan received a reply to the letter she had sent Vitalis. He said that he would be pleased to come and see her, and that he would arrive the following Saturday by the two o'clock train. I asked permission to go to the station with the dogs and pretty hard to meet him. In the morning, the dogs were restless, as though they knew that something was going to happen. Pretty Heart was indifferent. I was terribly excited. My fate was to be decided. If I had possessed the courage, I would have implored Vitalis not to tell Mrs. Milligan that I was a foundling. But I felt that I could not utter the word even to him. I stood in a corner of the railway station, holding my dogs on a leash, with pretty heart under my coat. And I waited. I saw little of what passed around me. It was the dogs who warned me that the train had arrived. They scented their master. Suddenly, there was a tug at the leash. As I was not on my guard, they broke loose. With a bark, they bounded forward. I saw them spring upon Vitalis. More sure, although less supple than the other two, Capi had jumped straight into his master's arms, while Zerbino and Dulce jumped at his feet. When Vitalis saw me, he put Capi down quickly and threw his arms around me. For the first time, he kissed me. God bless you, my boy. He said again and again. My master had never been hard with me, but neither had he ever been affectionate, and I was not used to these effusions. I was touched, and the tears came to my eyes, for I was in the mood when the heart is easily stirred. I looked at him. His stay in prison had aged him greatly. His back was bent his face paler, and his lips bloodless. 
You find me changed, don't you, Remy? he said. I was none too happy in prison, but I'll be better now I'm out. Then, changing the subject, he added, Tell me about this lady who wrote to me. How did you get to know her? I told him how I had met Mrs. Milligan and Arthur in their barge, the Swan, on the canal, and of what we had seen and what we had done. I rambled along hardly knowing what I said. Now that I saw Vitalis, I felt that it would be impossible to tell him that I wanted to leave him and stay with Mrs. Milligan. We reached the hotel where Mrs. Milligan was staying before my story was ended. Vitalis had not mentioned what she had proposed to him in her letter, so I said nothing of her plan. Is this lady expecting me? he asked as we entered the hotel. Yes, I'll take you up to her apartment, I said. There's no occasion for that, he replied. I'll go up alone. You wait here for me with pretty heart and the dogs. I had always obeyed him, but in this case I felt that it was only fair for me to go up with him to Mrs. Milligan's apartment. But with a sign he stopped the words on my lips and I was forced to stay below with the dogs. Why didn't he want me to be present when he spoke to Mrs. Milligan? I asked myself this question again and again. I was still pondering over it when he returned. Go and say goodbye to the lady, he said briefly. I'll wait for you here. We shall go in ten minutes. I was thunderstruck. Well, he said, didn't you understand me? You stand there like a stupid. Hurry up. He had never spoken so roughly to me. Mechanically, I got up to obey, not seeming to understand. What did you say to her, I asked, after I had gone a few steps. I said that I needed you and that you needed me. And consequently, I was not going to give up my rights to you. Go. I give you ten minutes to say goodbye. I was so possessed by the fact that I was a foundling that I thought that if I had to leave immediately, it was because my master had told them about my birth. Upon entering Mrs. Milligan's apartment, I found Arthur in tears and his mother bending over him. You won't go, Remy, oh, Remy, tell me you won't go, he sobbed. I could not speak. Mrs. Milligan replied for me, telling Arthur that I had to do as I was told. Signor Vitalis would not consent to let us have you, said Mrs. Milligan in a voice so sad. He's a wicked man, cried Arthur. No, he is not a wicked man, continued Mrs. Milligan. He loves you, and he needs you. He speaks like a man far above his position. He told me, let me see, these were his words. 
I love that child, and he loves me. The apprenticeship in the life that I give him is good for him. Better, far better than he would have with you. You would give him an education, that is true. You would form his mind, but not his character. It is the hardships of life that alone can do that. He cannot be your son. He will be mine. That is better than to be a plaything for your sick child, however sweet he may be. I also will teach the boy. But he isn't Remy's father, cried Arthur. That is true. But he is his master, and Remy belongs to him. For the time being, Remy must obey him. His parents rented him to Signor Vitalis. But I will write to them and see what I can do. Oh, no, no, don't do that, I cried. What do you mean? Oh, no, please don't. But that is the only thing to do, my child. Oh, please, please don't. If Mrs. Milligan had not spoken of my parents, I should have taken much more than the ten minutes to say goodbye that my masters had given me. They live in Chavanon, do they not? asked Mrs. Milligan. Without replying, I went up to Arthur and putting my arms round him, clung to him for a moment, then, freeing myself from his weak clasp, I turned and held out my hands to Mrs. Milligan. Poor child, she murmured, kissing me on the forehead. I hurried to the door. Arthur, I will love you always, I said, choking back my sobs. And I never, never will forget you. Mrs. Milligan. Remy, Remy, cried Arthur. I closed the door. One moment later I was with Vitalis. Off we go, he said. And that was how I parted from my first boy, who was my friend.